obligation, that's too smooth. You've, you've ruined the surprise in the gospel. God is in the position where he could just erase the universe. You're making it sound as if it's just natural that since we fell, that he did this. It is not natural that he did that. It is amazing that he did that. Now, those who had real good fathers have an inkling of that in a new way. Uh, that, that doesn't sound uh, out of the ordinary or totally weird to them. There's a clue in the analogy of being there. But uh, I'm going to criticize this manuscript and say, don't make it sound as if because we are sinners, God did this for us. Dorothy Sayers, the woman graduate of Oxford and friend of the Inklings, wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker. And one of the things Dorothy Sayers said, uh, she was, I think I would have asked her to marry me. She was, a, she was an Orthodox Chestertonian Roman Catholic cigar smoker with a child out of wedlock. And as near as I can figure out, sort of like Maggie Thatcher, I think I would have been immediately in love. Anyway. She wrote the Lord Peter Whimsey mystery tales, Dorothy Sayers. And at one point she said, the gospel story is the greatest plot line ever. It is the greatest plot line ever. And she said, nobody, nobody could make this story boring except the clergy of the Church of England. <laughs> She said, you would have to be devoting yourself 24 hours a day, heart and soul, to make a story this wonderful, boring, but they have managed to do it. Um, the gospel story is a thriller. It's a thriller. Why is it that secular people, non-Christians, read the Lord of the Rings every year the way Christians read scripture? There's a reason for it. Tolkien was doing the great story again only more subtly. People read it for therapy. They read it to be healed. And I'll say a little bit about that maybe uh, later on as to how those things heal us. But it's the great story. It's the great story. The only healing story there really is. Okay, hope that helps. I get what you're saying is step one is that we're all sinners, we're mm -hmm. all wicked, and I get mm -hmm. what you're saying as step two, the only atonement for mm -hmm. that is the cross, mm -hmm. is Christ. What would you say in 50 words or less is step three? Don't hurry. Okay. Don't hurry to step three. Don't hurry to ethics. Stay in the amazingness of it all longer than you think you should. Self-indulge. Stay in the wonderfulness of it all. Read about it, sing about it, talk to others about it. What sounds too good to be true? Is it really true? This is too good to be true. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. All of that. Stay put. Ethics will come. Don't hurry. Yeah. In my small group, we have a, we, we've got a little problem of the homosexual issue. Yeah, what you said was um, the homosexuals going to be in heaven just like we are. There, some will. We, some will believe in Jesus. Right. This is. They're sinners. We're sinners. Fine. And we we probably get that far. But then the problem I'm 
problem I'm having is so clergy sinners, bishops are sinners, the homosexual bishop is a sinner. What's the big deal? And that's that's well, the thing that would have had me out of the Episcopal Church much earlier than this would have had to be with theology, not with their plumbing. It, well, it, what is going to save is theology. Um, homosexuality might be particularly reprehensible as we consider it, but really, um, even given Romans 1, where it's sort of singled out, still, finally, it's going to be refusing God's answer in Jesus that damns saying, no, I will not. I will not. Um, and that's really the story of the Bible more than Sodom, Gomorrah, Romans 1, or anything else. Um, Luther used to say that if you don't understand that the major subject of the Bible is Jesus, you'll never understand the Bible. He also said, and others said, if you don't understand that the interpretation of the Bible is by means of law and gospel, you'll not understand it. God's law is to be preached, 120 proof. Huh? White lightning. And that's hard for a pastor to do, to really preach the law. It's easy to scold the congregation. It's hard to preach the law well. Pray for him. 120 proof. And then, even greater than that, the balm of Gilead, the healing of people who are in that deep of trouble. We Americans have it sort of that we're, that we're kind of... Um, misbehaving and God loves us anyway. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that we have shaken our fist in his face, said we will be God. And he freely dies for us who are in exactly that stance toward him and hate him that deeply. And he rescues us and says, here, be a son. Be a son. It's free. Come on in. The prodigal son. He doesn't even wait for us to give our long thing about how bad we've done it. I mean, even that we kind of self-atone for ourselves. Do I really grind myself deeply into the ground, deeply enough that it earns his forgiveness? All of that is foreign to the Bible story. He just simply rescues those who hate him. So my, my major concern with all churches is not even the behavior of bishops. It's their unbelief that drives me crazy. It's that they are bad shepherds, and it's cognitive. It isn't what bet between their legs that bothers me. It's what's between their ears and in their heart that bothers me. And it has to do with theology. Hmm. So if I, I don't mean to treat it lightly, but uh, my church in which I grew up was losing its theology. I transferred to a German church. I can't tell you, as a Scandinavian, how reprehensible that was to have to do. <laughs> we had to fight their panzer tanks dressed in white on skis and with rifles that were not that great. And to move to a German church. Um, but they were the ones who were confessing what ought to have been confessed. So I said, I got to do it. That's where I got to go. I think they're crazy in, in the way they behave with each other. I think the, the uh, um, 
Lack of friendships between the men is just incredible. Um, I think the family is next to death. All these things that I believe about the contemporary German family, but it didn't matter. They were the ones who were confessing the historic Lutheran gospel. They were the ones who were saying it and saying, this is what we stand for. I had to go there. Well, a lot of it I don't know because I don't pay any attention. I think I still have a pension, but I haven't looked uh, in the one I left. Um, but we started denying that scripture was true. We started to hire professors fresh out of Germany who had a higher critical view of the Bible that the Episcopalians bought decades before we did. But for us, that was really really something new. And the whole church, the whole American Lutheran church, turned left, theologically. Uh, people who believed the scriptures were made to feel insulted. Uh, the national magazine made fun of scripture or looked down its nose on those who believed the text of scripture. And at that point I said, I got to get out. I can't be a part of a church that does that. Now, when in 1970 or 80-whatever, the American Lutheran farmer in Nebraska saw on the Dan Rather nightly news that there was one of his clergymen marrying two men out in San Francisco, he was utterly shocked that one of his clergymen would do that. And in a way, I had very little patience for that farmer. I would have said, why didn't you say something 20 years ago when the real trouble started with our view of scripture, that's when we needed you. And you just said to yourself, well, I don't understand those things, and I'm sure our guys are okay. I said, this, you're 20 years late showing up. Uh, theology is more important than sexual behavior. I, I hope that's of help. Um, I think when you started this lecture, you made the comment, something along the lines that uh, because of the poverty of human language, uh, it's almost impossible, if it's not impossible, to adequately describe the goodness of God in terms of how far infinitely superior it is mm -hmm. to our ideas of goodness. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. our ideas of goodness there may be some similarity. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to take that thought mm -hmm. and move it to the concept of justice. Mm -hmm. And the idea of vicarious sacrifice, the idea of imputed righteousness, mm -hmm. the thought that God would call a perfectly innocent person sinful mm -hmm. and call a perfectly wretched person righteous, mm -hmm seems so antithetical to any idea I have about the notion of justice. And I think what you said, I think you actually sort of uh, referred to this, that it seems to me that in, that, in, the, in the context of imputed righteousness, the idea of God's justice and the idea of his mercy are actually inconsistent with one another. That, and I think the word that you use is that God had the right. But 
just mentally that doesn't I don't I don't follow that. How can God's justice be absolutely consistent with his mercy in this idea of imputation of righteousness? Good question. Really good question. And I don't know that I can adequately answer that just on the fly. Um, down deep, this is, uh, you know, when Lutherans talk about law and gospel, we have some of these that are just like this, and we don't expect them to be, high, to be solved until we're in what Martin Chemnitz calls that heavenly school. Um, one of the reasons I go to Lenten services is that I have the same doubts that you have. And I'm convinced that I can't solve the thing in abstracto. I've tried. I'm not sure that abstraction will do it for me. But if my pastor will preach that God's son is dying in my place, that he truly is the lamb, if he will tell that story to me again, for just a few moments I find it somehow not incredible. There's this divine must in scripture it is necessary that the Son of Man be delivered into the hands of sinners and die and rise again the third day. And you try and squeeze that. What is that? It is necessary that. What is that? Uh, Leon Morris, the Reformed New Testament scholar, probably is the guy on what happens at the cross. He has one called the Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. He has another one called the cross in the New Testament. And he squeezes those New Testament words to see if he can do something with that. The, the times when it seems brightest to me is when I realize from what my father is like that God says, you don't have to understand all of it. Just understand that I dealt with my own justice without you privy to it. I dealt with it somehow within myself and in the person of the Son one afternoon, 20 minutes walk outside the city of Jerusalem, I dealt out every bit of justice onto my own body. Uh, I drank it to the dregs and you will be the benefactor. There's a little bit of that I recognize from my father. I say, oh yeah, oh yeah. But uh, here I, do, I defer to the writers in the field who dealt with the doctrine of the atonement. Leon Morris is the best I know. <laughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. well, I think we all should take a break, and maybe we could encourage Rod to really say what he thinks Sure, sure. <laughs> that be have asked us to come back to some kind of order. Um, I'm going to quote to you one of the most famous things that Luther ever wrote, and then I'm going to tell some stories. Okay? All right. 
the second article. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. We would say, is my God. Who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sin, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death, in order that I might be his own, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. That's one of the most famous paragraphs you'll ever hear quoted from Luther. Uh, a little disclaimer before I start. Some of the stories that I'm going to tell involve money. Uh, my father was a surgeon, and there was a certain amount of money that probably was not normal. But the story could be changed. It doesn't primarily involve money, and so, but I say that as a disclaimer uh, right off the bat. Then uh, another sort of overall comment before I begin. Um, You've heard me, those of you who've been to the earlier sessions, have heard me make oblique or passing reference to a man that I think probably isn't a Christian, the poet Robert Bly, uh, interviewed by Bill Moyers and purchasable on VHS as a gathering of men. Um, one of the things that was in that tape that I said to myself, I am never, never going to forget that, was when... Bly looked at us older guys in the room and he said, how many young men can you name whom you have blessed this last week? Now, what did he mean by that? He meant that the younger boys and men of America have no rites of passage. They aren't built into the culture anymore and they desperately need us old guys to tell them that they're okay. They need it like air. They need it more than they even know. And Bly was on to that, or is on to that, that one of the things we older men can do that doesn't cost anything is to lis listen to those young guys, many of whom had no real father at all in the home, and sponsor their lives some kind of a way, not necessarily uh, where it's taking us 18 hours a day, but in the slightest of ways. And it's almost like magic to have an older man say, I think what you're doing is great. You got a lot of guts. Huh? You got a lot of guts. I'm not sure I could do that, but you can. I'm, I'm, that's great. Keep doing it. If I can help, let me know. I mean, in our own style, that might be in my style, and you might have a different style, but boy, do they need it. Boy, do they need it. So with that kind of in the background, something that sort of uh, in one image 
sums up what he was. My favorite picture of my dad has him, it's a black and white, he's in a Pendleton shirt, and he's up at a farm that I'll tell you about in a bit that he bought. He has riding boots on, one foot is elevated, it's on a log that's in front of him. He has a hat on, holds a coffee cup in his right hand, and has a six-gun on his hip. That was the man. He's a surgeon, trained by Charlie Mayo, but there was the man. And if anything, if I want to look at a picture and, and sort of see it sum him up, there it is. Another one that I remember back, before there were freeways in most areas of Canada, he took us on a vacation up to Banff and then even further north. And we ended up in the Kicking Horse Canyon near Jasper. Uh, pretty wild. My dad was somebody who got up early in the morning. I've discovered I'm inclining a little more to this in my old age, uh, but most of my life I haven't. He got up early in the morning. I think that probably he got up early in the morning, read the scriptures a little, prayed a little. Things were quiet. And uh, he went to bed early, but he got up early. Up there, I noticed him, and we were in this rustic cabin near this gigantic waterfalls, and I noticed him get up early in the morning, and I looked out from my bed, and I decided to follow him. He was going out the door. He was carrying some stuff with him. I couldn't see what it was. And I decided to follow him. I knew he wouldn't mind, but I did. I wanted to see what he was going to do. I was a little kid, eight. And what he did was he had taken his shaving gear complete with brush, you know, and the cup of soap, and a, I think it was a safety razor, not an open razor. And I followed behind him, and he got into that icy fog where that water crashed off the hard rocks and came up as fog, took off what he was wearing, he was wearing a towel only, got into that fog, and whipped up that soap and started shaving in that ice water coming from a falls up in the Rockies. And I learned a lot about him in just a matter of minutes. Nobody would have known that he had done that. His favorite reading material was nonfiction, and it had to do with the Northwest. Uh, he even read Justice William Douglas, who loved to trek through the Northwest. Um, he would take us to National Geographic movies. We as youngsters didn't, uh, didn't take much notice of that, but we went along because he said we should go. And it was pictures from some of the finest photographers in the world. They were armed with Leica M3s or Bolex 16mm equipment and shot for National Geographic Life and other magazines. He loved the, ex the external world of God. And now I look back on it and I say, boy, was I ever being arrogant in not sidling up to that. I did it, but I had no idea. He said to me one time, how would you like to be the family photographer? I had started shooting a few pictures with a little Kodak box camera. I said, well, I don't know if I could, but sure. He said, well, let's go get a camera for you. So we're downtown Tacoma at the camera store and Barney what's his name, who owned the place, 
was uh, showing us cameras. My dad said, I think you need a Leica M3. I don't know if any of you know cameras. A Leica M3 is not exactly starting at the bottom. Sumacron F2 lens, collapsible. And uh, that was his sort of way of, of getting me into photography to do that. I look back on that and it's just amazing. By the way, the guy who was selling the cameras is the fellow who grabbed a Bolex 16mm movie camera and shot the bridges of the Narrows Bridge going down in the wind. Huh? They had built a perfect airfoil, they just didn't realize it. Uh, you might remember that one, Galloping Gertie. He was the one selling us the camera. He had, he had had the foresight when he heard it on the radio to grab that Bolex movie camera and go there and shoot pictures of the thing going down. Um, another time, I was over at the University of Washington living in Animal House, the SAE house, and uh, <laughs> The original chapter is down here somewhere. Tuscaloosa, is it? <laughs> um, and I got a phone call from my dad. And he said to me, um, did you say one time that you'd like a sports car? And I said, Dad, I'd love a sports car. He said, well, I just saved this guy's life in surgery. And he bought one and he hates it. He just wants to dump it. So I thought I'd call and ask you. Because he just wants to get rid of it. He hates it. I said, what is it? He said, it's an MGA, convertible, black. <sighs> Into my lap comes an MGA convertible, uh, black, I don't know how many coats of lacquer paint, onyx-like, and it had what, fewer than 10,000 miles on it? The guy hated it, and my dad thought, well, if you want to dump it, uh, I might have a place to you might dump that car. I look back on that and I, it just causes me to shake my head. Just absolutely shake my head. Um, one time we were just having our normal pre-dinner whatever like anybody else and in his inimitable style he came home from work gathered us all together in the kitchen. I thought there was going to be something very serious because he didn't do that sort of thing. He gathered us all into the kitchen and he looked at us and he said, I want you to go pack your bags because in three hours we're leaving for Honolulu. Now, I'd never been outside the state of Washington. Huh? Hawaii to me was a picture on a black and white television screen and maybe what I'd heard from a couple of kids. That was about it. But the way, the way in which he said this was, uh, let's go, I've arranged everything, it's all taken care of, pack your bags, this is going to be fun, uh, we'll leave in a few hours. Uh, now, of course, I, was, I think I was too young to even pack bags, but still, to have that kind of announcement. It was like the time I was older, I had had a driver's license by then, there was a Buick salesman in Tacoma, and of course, I suppose they got all the doctor's names and just did cold call dialing of them. I don't know. But anyway, he got a call from the Buick agency, and the fellow said, Doc, I've got this great white Buick convertible. You'd just love it. My dad answers back, I don't need a car. I've only got 30,000 miles on the one that I have now. It's going to last, I can tell, for quite a while. Thanks for the offer, but no thanks. And the guy wouldn't quit. 
Finally, after this, evidently what happened was that he cajoled my father into taking it for the weekend. A white 59 Buick convertible, tuck and roll, red and white upholstery. It was kind of slick. He drives out to our beach place in this. I look, I look at this car that has just been spiffed by the agency so that a doctor will buy it. He walks by me, tosses me the keys and says, have a good weekend. I had a girlfriend who worked at a movie theater as an usher. And in all that light like Las Vegas, I came and picked her up after work in a white convertible where all the light shone off the waxed surface and came and picked her up. It was magic. It was absolute magic if just for 48 hours. I took the thing out and took it to 120. Um, just absolute magic. Um, he had taken care of that. It, there were... There were gifts like this along the way, out of nowhere, that I look back on and they just draw tears to my eyes. It was his normal inclination. I don't think it even took plotting in his mind much. It was that he remembered his own childhood. He remembered what it felt like to be a child. I think half of our trouble as adults is that we forget what the world looks like through a child's eyes. There's a lot of magic that we can do that doesn't cost a lot of money and doesn't take a lot of energy, and it's absolute magic. Uh, my kids went to an Episcopal Harvard prep school. There's one in Southern California. Some of you heard me mention it. Those young kids grew up not just with swimming pools and tennis courts that were their own private ones, part of the house and, and uh, the lot, but their own stables. Um, and they would have birthday parties and they were catered at two or three thousand dollars. It doesn't take that. It doesn't. Those kids, as I've said to some of you privately, those kids who were in those five million dollar houses in Orange County gladly grabbed sleeping bags and came and stayed at our little tracked house on the weekend because things were okay. And uh, they were protected. There was a little beer there and nobody cared if they had it. Uh, as long as they weren't driving, they just stayed there at the house. Nobody checked their language during that time. They could stay up till four in the morning. There was a pool table where they could play pool, um, a dartboard, there were various games that they could play in this simple little tracked house. Why did they come there from their $5 million uh, architectural digest homes? Because it was free. There was a freedom to it. I didn't rear my children to be obedient. I reared them to be free. Germans just can't get that. The job of a father isn't primarily to give even responsibility to his son. Uh, they learn that more by what we are than uh, any sort of sermons we preach on being responsible. And it's a category of the law that's already built into the human being, boys, men, women, it, it's already in there, sort of. But um, freedom is something else, to feel free inside. And fathers have a tremendous ability to absolve or to um, free up 
or to not spend all of their time evaluating. Let mom do that. You know, dads, we can't just redouble what mom does. She's difficult for a son at best. But if we redouble that message, he's got nowhere to go. We have a different message. Um, my son tells the story. I had completely forgotten this, but this is, I know where this comes from. It comes from my dad. There was one time when I came home, my son tells me, you were standing here, Dad, and Aaron was here, Mom was here, and you were over here, and you came home, and everything was in a total schmozzle. Huh? Mom had the righteousness, the kids had disobeyed, it was a tremendous knot. Huh? And he said, I remember what you did. Do you remember? And I said, no, what did I do? He said, you reached in your wallet, and you pulled out your visa card, and you said to Mom, Go to Newport Beach to the nicest motel you can find. Have a massage, do whatever you would like to do, enjoy the evening. I'm going to try and fix whatever the hell you did today. <laughs> he remembers that as if it were yesterday. He remembers it as, as if it were yesterday. And he knew somehow that the conversation that was going to ensue was not going to be the same conversation that happened with his mom that got the deadlock going. That somehow there was going to be a way out in which he couldn't imagine the details of it, but somehow dad would provide it. That there was going to be a way in which the log jam could be broken. Um, this stuff is magic, absolute magic to sons. He ran his office, and when I was very, very young, I sort of worked as a file clerk there. And I remember one time there was this beautiful Southern Belle who was a nurse of his. I was sure I was in love. Her name was Frida, and she had a Southern drawl that was just wonderful, beautiful blonde. And I, in working in the office, kind of caught some of the office... Um, um, gossip or talk just because I was there and I'd overhear the women talking once in a while. Evidently she was sick and she was there at work and my father got wind of that. It happened he left the door open. He took her into one of the examining rooms and he left the door open and I was curious what would happen so I stood out of their sight but where I could hear the conversation and it went like this. Frida, somebody told me you were sick. Are you sick? And I hear this quiet voice go, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, well, what are you doing here? And she said, well, uh, I just, uh, we need the money, so I came to work. And my dad said, do you imagine that if you went home that you wouldn't get paid? And there was no answer to that. And then you could sort of tell that his backbone kind of came up a little bit. He said, Frida? I run this office, and I have a pretty good idea how it runs top to bottom. We really can get along with you going home and staying home till you're well. He said, of course you'll be paid for it. Don't even think twice about it. And I will run this office so it'll get along just fine till you're back again. Feel free to go home and get well. And then I heard her start to cry. I run this office and I can do it and you can go home and get well. I don't care how long it takes. The office will be running when you get back. 
When I worked there as a very, very young boy, there was a Japanese lab tech. And he was teaching me a few of the things, thinking I might do some science. He was teaching me to do some of the lab work there. I was doing some CBCs and uh, urinalysis or two and learning the instruments and the microscope and how it worked and what you're looking for and how to count it. And he was overseeing me learning this stuff as a young boy. And one time I was in there and Carl looked at me and out of the blue, as we were doing some of this, I was probably eight, he said to me, do you know why I work for your dad? I said, no. He said, do you realize that I would work for your dad almost no matter what? I said, no. He said, well, wouldn't you like to know why? I said, yes, sir. He said, your dad hired me when others wouldn't. I'm Japanese. And he said, he pays me a wage that is better than anybody else in town gets on the one condition that I don't blab about it. I would do anything for your father. So I was seeing it again. Um, he bought a beach place for us out near Pug or Gig Harbor, just uh, Puget Sound area. We would have a 4th of July celebration and it was larger than life. I mean, he and some other guys would get fireworks so that we kids, and there, it was salt water on three sides. You weren't gonna do any damage or start any fires. It was salt water on three sides of the place. And we would have 4th of July celebrations. They weren't like Disneyland, but they were a competitor. Um, that was like magic. And you, they would go so late into the evening that uh, sometimes you'd fall asleep and there still were things going off. For a boy, explosives are just wonderful. Just absolutely wonderful. And for a father to teach you that explosives are fun is just magic, absolute magic. Um, he would also have a Christmas party for the hospital where he was chief of surgery. We had one bathroom in this little place and everybody would be there with all of their kids. He would make homemade ice cream for everybody beforehand. There were tubs of ice, galvanized square tubs of ice, and there was beer in, in one of them and soft drinks in the other. Uh, there was a pool there for the kids to play in, boats so they could learn to water ski, and he just did this every single year, and I had one of the employees say, you know, we look forward to this every, every year that your dad does this and has us all out here. Our kids even get so they look forward to it and ask how much longer is it going to be till we can go out there and swim and water ski. I found out someone else told me later on that every semester or every quarter he would drive over to the University of Washington Medical School and go to the registrar's office. And he would ask which students were seniors and having to drop out because they were out of money. And then he would pay the rest of their year for them gratis, books, tuition, all of that, on the one condition that they never found out who it was who did it for them. And he did it every semester. 
went over there and out of the blue paid these young men's bills on the condition of anonymity. I remember when we used to pretend we were going to study. Um, chemistry test was coming, high school. And so we'd say the same things to each other. Well, we really got to hit it tonight. huh? Come on over to my place and we'll cram this. Well, it lasted about a half an hour and we'd always end up playing poker uh, down there in the basement. And my dad would come down. He would have Coke and shaved ice for everybody, a bowl of buttered popcorn this big around, and he would sit down at the poker table and lose $50 and then go upstairs again. Every time. I'll bet that he folded with flushes. I'll bet he folded with full houses. I'll just bet. I never got to look over his shoulder, but he always lost 50 75 or $100 and then went upstairs again. It was like magic. It was just like magic. There wasn't a bit of the moralist in him. I remember one time we, we were driving some Sunday, and Fort Lewis is up near where I grew up. And there'd be fences, army base, of course. There'd be fences, and it'd be posted that all trespassers would be prosecuted. And especially it said uh, things like, that had to do with it was against the law to take anything or cut anything. We were driving along the border of Fort Lewis one time, and I could just see he just made a decision, pulled off the road and stopped. He said, Rod, come and help me. Opened up the trunk of the car, pulled out a tire iron. He said, grab every bit of newspaper there is in the trunk. And he went over and started digging up little Douglas fir trees to steal them from Fort Lewis. <laughs> So here he was, digging up these little Douglas fir trees. He was going to take them out to our beach place and plant them, see if he could make them grow. And then the newspaper was to wrap the roots for getting them home. And, and so we're out there surreptitiously stealing little tiny Douglas fir trees from Fort Lewis and hoping that nobody drives by. Inside, I'm just in glee that my dad is stealing these and we come to the end of it, and he really is anxious about this. So he says, okay, go get back in the car. I run back in the car and close the door, and he's back in the back, and he slams, slams the trunk lid and comes back into the car, and he starts laughing. Come to find out. This took a while to find out because he was laughing so hard. He had cut his handmade fly rod in half, in his anxiety and guilt, he had cut his handmade fly rod in half when he slammed the trunk. Multi-hundred-dollar fly rod. Now, it was a perfect time for a sermon in the worst sense. You know? Not a bit of it. We just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. He was going to have to have his fly rod remade. Uh, and what he got out of it was 12 little Douglas fir, all of which would probably die. Uh, but normally, what would, what would happen in that situation? Some awful sermon from dad to the kids. Not a bit of it. Didn't even occur to him. We just laughed at the irony of the whole thing. I can't tell you how freeing that was. Um, if he didn't do it to me then, he probably was never going to do it. Uh, 
I told the story the other day, and I won't repeat it. You can find it on tape if you want to, of when I crashed my car in a drunken state at age 16. And you can listen to that one on one of the other tapes. But it was another sort of illustration of the man's inclination. See, if I'm right on St. Thomas, all of this, every one of these things, is an analogy in some way to what God really is. It isn't the same as, it's just sort of a foggy picture, or it's kind of a, um, an out-of-focus photo of what God is like. If St. Thomas is right, and on this one I think he is. He used to drive us down every, every February from rainy Tacoma, Washington to Palm Springs, California. At that time, it was a little sleepy village that was an escape for Hollywood movie stars. We would see William Bendix on the street. We'd go to dinner at the restaurant and see Frank Sinatra or look over at the bar and see Bing Crosby without his toupee on. Um, it was, they could escape to Palm Springs and there weren't people there, not very many at all. And to do this, there weren't freeways then, to do this we had to drive through the Siskiyou Mountains during the snows. There, were no, there was no five. One time we were driving down through the snows uh, and stopped someplace to get something to eat and a guy came over to the table where we were eating and said, Doc, how are you doing? My dad looked up, it was a patient of his. He had the largest practice in the Northwest. And he looked up and greeted him. He said, hey Doc, how'd you and your son like to ride with me uh, for the next 50 miles and, and then meet your wife there? And my dad looked at uh, my mom and said, could you do that? And she said, yeah, I think I can do that. So. Uh, he gets me, and we go get in the cab of this gigantic 18-wheeler uh, that the guy drives. It's LASME, Los Angeles Seattle Motor Express, a pretty big, uh, now defunct, uh, trucking lines. We're driving along through the snows, and he hears a guy behind him honking. Somebody who's out of patience that we're only doing I don't know, 12 miles an hour, I'm watching how he, he shifts and I'm fascinated with how many gears there are. This is just a whole thrill. Anyway, some idiot behind him starts honking at him and he abides it for a while. And then he reaches up and pulls a cord and the honking stops. And my dad said, what did, you, what did you just do? He said, well, I drive this route quite a bit during the winter. And he said, I hooked up a line from my crankcase to the back of the trailer. I just sprayed crankcase oil all over his windshield. <laughs> and we were both just on the floor in laughter, just absolutely on the floor. Uh, we would go down to Palm Springs and just play every year. Uh, it was just like magic. He would talk to my teacher.